Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, this is Nicole Ferraro, Editorial Director at the Webby Awards. And Jason Brickhill, Social Media Manager at the Webbies. And we are excited because the nominees for the 22nd Annual Webby Awards have been announced. Woo! Yes, that means it's time for you to go vote in the Webby People's Voice Awards for your favorite nominees across all categories and media types, including websites, film and video, advertising media and PR, mobile sites and apps, social, podcasts and digital audio, and games. You can vote once in every category from now until Thursday, April 19th, and help your favorite nominees take home a Webby this year. Last year, over three and a half million votes were cast during Webby People's Voice. That's a lot, so go make sure that your voice is heard in deciding the best of the internet and start voting now. Nicole, where do people vote? Vote Vote.webbyawards.com. Vote.webbyawards.com. Go vote! From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Stay turned. Black Lives Matter. Politicians, we're watching you. Just want to say... Thanks, Obama. Injustice, oppression, social media equals revolution. Hey, welcome back. I'm super excited for this episode because we sit down with Webby-nominated organizer, activist, and podcaster extraordinaire, DeRay McKesson. If you're listening, there's a good chance you're familiar with DeRay or his work in the Black Lives Matter movement. About four years ago, he and millions took to the streets in Ferguson, Missouri, to protest police violence against black communities. DeRay is notable for his prolific use of Twitter to provide real-time, accurate updates of the demonstrations. Since then, he's been really using digital to address institutional racism, using initiatives like the Data-Driven Mapping Police Violence Project and Campaign Zero, and his podcast, Pod Save the People. DeRay and I talked briefly about his background, from what memories informed his worldview to his favorite childhood computer game, but quickly switched to how his team's using open source data to create equitable policy changes, the internet's impact on organizing, and a lot more. So from Baltimore, I grew up in the city, and in sixth grade, my father bought a house in the county so we could go to different schools, so we split time, we split like sort of daytime in school in the county and then sort of weekends and nights and stuff like that in the city with my grandmother and my aunts and uncles so it was great both my parents were addicted to drugs my father raised us my mother left when i was three did you know that at the time or obviously not when you were three but when you were older did you know that they were addicted they were addicted. Drugs? yeah my father yeah part so my father stopped using around when i like when he got custody of us around three so so much of our adolescence was like growing up sort of in recovery too right like at na meetings or like at church programs so those sort of things so he was very upfront about it very open my mother she left when i was three and came back when i was 30 so we knew she was like we knew she was gone Um, so that so we knew that and uh you know, I was in student government from sixth grade to senior in college. I was a youth organizer in the city, did that. Went to Bowdoin in Maine, which was great. Did a lot of student government there. And then I taught sixth grade math in East New York, Brooklyn, which was the most important thing I've ever done. 
Uh, I worked in the Home Children's Zone, the large, uh, helped lead the largest community center, the 145th and Douglas. And then I went home, opened up an after-school center, trained and supported a third of all the new teachers in the city for two years. I was the number two human capital in the school system. Left, went to Minneapolis, led all staffing. I was a senior director of human capital there. Mike Brown got killed. I quit. And sort of, you know, the rest of the story. I mean, that's that's a lot to. De- I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to deal with that stuff when you're young. Was was the the I don't want to say propensity, but was like the early activism because not everybody's in student student government and like leading that kind of stuff when they're that age. Was that you know was that part of that story? The desire to be like trying to really take charge and change things was was part of your background. I think, you know, I was very aware of what it means to grow up in a community of recovery that like every day I saw people put their lives back together in contexts where they didn't think it might have been possible. And like that has always stuck with me. I think that the student government stuff, like I remember in sixth grade, I remember like the little speech I gave in the cafeteria uh, was more about it was the first time that I understood that I have power. You know, when we talk about what it means to empower people. It's like I can't give you power. What I can do is help you find the power you have. Like that is actually what it means to empower people. And, like that happened for me in sixth grade. And I was like, we can, you know, in sixth grade, it's like we're planning like the sixth grade dance, you know, like, but it was like, oh my God, we could plan that, right? Like this is like not a thing that just sort of happens. It's like people put it together. And that stuck with me. In a lot of, you know, middle and high school is like programming. College was like a, a, a little more issue based, but like, Middle school and high school, so you were back then. We did like the dances and the big events and pepper and stuff like that. So I learned a lot about like what it means to have young people lead because like I was one of those young people like really early. And I learned a lot of skills about what a team looks like, how to deal with pressure, how to make decisions within constraints. Like all those things are things that I'm thankful that I learned when I was like 11, 12, and 13. Yeah. And with technology playing a role in at that point in your life? I had a computer. You know, my father got me a laptop, like, early. You know, like, it was, like, the only thing I wanted for Christmas or something. And I had, so I probably had a laptop since I was, like, 12. Like, I just had, like, my own personal, like, it was mine. And that was huge. It's, like, why I can, like, type, I can type really well, or I can, like, text without looking, like, those sort of things, like, just because I had it when I was a, a kid. It's also one of the reasons, I don't think I've ever really talked about this, because people don't ask, but I can't play, I don't play video games anymore, because when I was a kid, I played SimCity so much that, like, I'll never forget, like, I played it in the bathroom, like, my eyes were burning, I didn't go to sleep, I was just like, nothing should be like this, like, nobody should like any, so I don't play video games to this day because of... Computer it was games. like too much. It was just too much. I like had no control. You know, I was like yeah. completely lost it. I was like, this is not, people shouldn't do this. So I, I think, you know, my, my love of technology definitely from back then, but you know, you remember it and you're a little older than me is that you remember back in the day when like, I remember going to the bookstore and getting like the book of websites, you know, like I remember being at Barnes and being like, Oh my God, there's a new book of websites. It's like way pre Google. So that is like actually what I remember about like the old internet was like, being like, I need the most updated book because, like, how am I going to know where to go? Right, or some magazine like that came out like monthly that was like, this is this month's cool website. Yeah, you're like, oh my god, like people don't even remember those, you know? I had, I was telling the kid, I was like, do you know what? Have you ever seen a telephone book? Because it's like maybe you've never seen a telephone book, you know? And then he was like, yeah, and I was like, we used to have that for the internet, and he was like, really? And I'm like, yeah, not even 50 years ago. It's like when I was a kid, you know. In 2015, you and some fellow activists started the site uh, Mapping Police Violence, and it uses data to quantify the impact of police violence in communities. Can you talk a bit about how you came to start that that site, and what was the, you know, if not the inspiration, what was the thing that drove you and your colleagues to, to get that started? 
So the push behind that was Sam, who is great. Sam's on the podcast. On the podcast, love Sam. I met Sam on Twitter. Uh, somebody had said something disparaging about the protests, and somehow he just got like looped in. He just like kept. He was like in this Twitter thread, and something about what he said, I was like, oh, I just DM'd him like, give me a call when you get a chance, and uh, we had a great call. It's like love to figure out what we can do together, and like we've been together ever since. So. So that was we, part of your coming out of the Ferguson experience. We were still in the streets. Yeah, we were in the, the street, street for 400 days. So I probably met Sam around like day 200-ish okay. probably. And was he out there also? No, he okay. was in California. Got like it. We met okay. him online. And I remember that we were still on the street because I remember one day, I remember when he quit his job, he called me. He's like, do I just quit? And I'm like, we have no, why did you quit? You know, I'm like, we don't got no money, no plan. Like, what are you doing? Um, and I, rem- I was in St. Louis when I got that call. Like, I remember the parking lot I was in being like, what is this kid doing? But... But, you know, one of the reasons why we started Campaign Zero and mapping police violence was, like, trying to figure out, uh, like, both what's the data, how do we make sure that, like, activists sort of own and manage the narrative around the data, too, that, like, we can look at it and, and decide our own trends and we can, like, ask the questions and ask answer the questions that we think are important, not only always looking at other people's data sets. So, like, that was really important to us. And Sam helped, Sam helped to, like, sort of lead that push on the team and like that was that was dope so we did map and police violence first and then we did the campaign zero sort of policy work second and that was those are the first two uh, big projects to come out of the movement across the country uh campaign zero was the first policy platform to emerge it's why we met with bernie and hillary and president obama and those sort of things and we continue now to like you know, I think about this as like a system of choices, uh, not a system of chance or constants, right? And part of our work is to map the choices so that we can help people see that like people did this and because people did it, we can undo it and that we can actually set you up to make different choices. So like, can you unpack that a little bit? So people did this, people did what? And what are the what are those choices that you're that you're trying to have people make different ones of Uh, people did everything so you think about like the fact that some people's mistake is called a crime and some people's mistakes aren't called crimes is a choice that's not like natural law you know it's like somebody said this was bad and and that there's gonna be a consequence right uh the like we think about the racial wealth gap in 2053 it's projected that uh, the median wealth for black people is going to be zero. It's like we gave white people wealth. That was a choice. We like gave them free housing, like essentially like 1% housing loans for 40 years. That was giving people housing. The highway administration created the suburbs for white people. Like we gave the GI. Like these are all choices, right? right? When you think about mass incarceration, you can either think about it as the system or you can think about it as a system of choices. So we spend so much time talking about the outcomes, talking about how many people are in prison, da da. Makes sense because the outcomes are bad. We wanted to figure out, like, what are the inputs that led to this stuff? Like, what are the laws, right? So, like, what does it mean that Louisiana and Oregon are the only two states that have what we call non-unanimous juries? So it only takes 10 of 12 people. On those juries, they convict people of a felony. That's why people are in jail, right? You know, most everywhere else in the United States and other states, it's all 12 most, 12. Everywhere yeah, else. Right, all yeah. the 40 other states, it takes all 12 people. So, like, it's why Louisiana has, like, a ton of people with life sentences with the possibility of parole because the threshold's, like, pretty low, right? It's directly tied to race. That in Louisiana, they when black people started sitting on juries, they changed the law and the Constitution. So, like, we're trying to map these things out because if we change the inputs, we can actually change what the outputs look like, right? So, but so much of the space so much of like the advocacy space is focused on like the output part, which makes sense. And it's like all these programs to serve people who've been victimized by the system. And what we're saying is that we just want to stop people being victimized, right? So we're not going to heavily invest in the like helping people who've been victimized. A lot of people are doing that. That's important work. We want to deal with like the front end issues and like stop the system from ever interacting with people on the front end. So 
we did the police union contract project because police unions across the country are, or the contracts are providing protections for police that the public doesn't get. So like in Portland, Oregon, they have a clause that says that police, off, like the clause literally says, like, this isn't my interpretation, like the words are, uh, the police have to, the public the police officer has to be disciplined in the least embarrassing way to the officer in the department. You're like, I don't even know what that means. Sacramento, where Stefan Clark was just killed, the police union contract says that officer discipline records get destroyed every year. It's like, well, no other private citizen like right. so we're trying to map these things out so that people could see these are the levers. We realized that, that we were playing a different game than the police. That like they were just playing on like the law policy court level and we were sort of playing in the court of public opinion and that the court of public opinion wasn't enough to trump no pun intended the like the other set of things right right? so we believe that like if we hadn't seen the streets there'd be no attention to this issue incredibly real and important but we also know that protest is not the answer protest creates space for the answer so the protest created space for the conversation and da da da. So we were trying to figure out like now that the space is there, what do we do next, right? Like how do we like push to change systems and structures? So that's one. And the second is that we took all it was like all of our collective experience. So I've been a senior leader in human capital in a in a, in a big institution in school system in Baltimore. So I already knew that contracts were like a secret lever because when I was the special assistant in the Office of Human Capital, I helped administer them, right? So like I was in the room, I enforced them. I, so I like knew these levers that like people didn't normally know, but like I had to do contract stuff all the time, right? right. And I was most recently the chief of human capital in the school system in Baltimore and I managed the contract. So like that was sort of my bias coming in being like, we should, let's just look at the contracts and see if anything's there. We did it and like there's a lot there. Sam already was sort of like, he had this itch about uh, use of force policies and like it turned out to be the right itch so like we did it that was an important project we're about to do something around court cases like that's what we're working on now so there's one case graham b connor that's like the seminal case that protects the police under the civil rights act so we're doing some work on that right now which is like sort of the last part of like this big push to like unmask all the things that are like the different playing field right one thing that really struck me with campaign zero if you actually go through all the policies is they're they're super data based, right? Like they're they're very much informed by real data that's out there, and which I found really interesting about it. For instance, one of them was to stop um, broken windows policing, right? And that actually comes from uh, a policy prescription that also was said to be like really data based that they had done all this analysis and this way to do it, um, and it really sort of shows and brings to light to me at least that really the way you look at or narrate or the narrative you put around data has as much impact as the data itself. Yeah, yeah. And we also, what we wanted to do too is like, we wanted to, as an organizing principle, we didn't and don't believe that you have to go through us to do good work, right? So it's why everything that we make is like open source, the data's there, the like text is there, like you can do your own analysis with the data we've compiled. It takes a long time to compile it. But we also know that like you might look at something different that we've never looked at. And like we want you to be able to do that. So there are people across the country who use our data to push their police union contracts and they haven't called us. And we're like, cool, as long as you change it, right? There's some people who like need some more techno assistance and we're like, cool, because we've looked at way more than you have. So we'll come in and like, if you need us to help convince a city council member, a mayor, got it, right? But like, we wanted the data to, to be public and open source as a, as a principle so that you could go and like when we first, you know, we put out a year in report at the end of 2017 and there are people who sort of challenge the data. And it's like, if you can prove that we like analyze it wrong, let us know, right? right. But like, we think they were right. And like you, all the data that we use is like here, here's a data set. It's already public. And like, we think that that is important. It's just like an organizing principle because the alternative is there are a lot of places where like the only way to get access is to like set up a meeting. And then it's like, this should be public. Like 
you know, we we never think that we're the only people who have a good idea. There's, you know, it's, it also brings up the question. There's a lot of discussion out there these days that even when you present people with data, that like they still won't change their mind, right? That at the end of the day, they they need to like know somebody that this has happened to, or they need to have a friend or somebody in their life that has been affected by some of these issues. Is that something that you see as well? You know, I think that I think some of this is like, how do we tell this story in a way that makes sense? What we would say is that like the biggest levers are just so damning that like I don't need to embellish it. It just doesn't make sense. So like I would love for people to defend the fact that the police officer disciplinary records get destroyed. I don't think you need to know a victim of police violence to be like that just isn't fair. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. So what we would say is that the biggest levers are things that like we actually think are are consensus things people just don't know. So like it's hard, you know, in Louisiana, they're trying to change the non-unanimous juries down to make it 12 to 12. The district attorneys are against it. And like, so you might, like I, I'm like, well, what's the, like, I want to know, like, why are you defending this 10 out, 10 out of 12 thing? And his statement, like on the record is, it's really hard to get everybody to agree about anything. And you're like, is that really, is that the best you got? Like that <laughs> yeah. is a weak, that's weak yeah. sauce, right? And we would love for like that, he, we would love for him saying that to be like looped on TV because it's just so crazy that it's like we like we don't need to do the work of like saying that's crazy. We just need to show people because it doesn't make sense, you know? Yeah. Talk a little bit about the impact you've seen with increasing filming with police now with body cams for good and for bad. Like, how do you look at the impact of that? Because that's it's something that we've only seen really in the last few years or at least in the last few years. It feels like it's had a bigger impact than it had in the past. Cameras are part of Campaign Zero. You know, the movement community sort of split on body cameras and it makes sense. I think one of the hard things about body cameras is that they moved way quicker than the activists moved and not no fault of ours. Like collectively, we were still in the street, you know, we were in the street for 400 days. So people remember the the initial protest in Ferguson is like a long weekend. And it was like, no, it was like a, we're in the street for a long time. Right. So during that time, some of the body camera stuff started moving and like, we were still in the middle of the street. So like, we weren't necessarily looking at that stuff. Cause like we were right. ducking the police. Right. So, what happened is that like the body camera legislation and policies and practices started getting implemented like before anybody was able to get in front of it and say, here are the best practices. So we're sort of behind. The reason that we came out in favor of like cameras in general video footage is that we we could find almost no and or very, very few cases where an officer was even indicted without video footage. That like the absence of video footage almost guarantees nothing will happen. The presence doesn't mean anything happened either, but like the presence like dramatically increases the odds that like something might happen. Right. Right. But the body camera stuff is, is fraught with issues. There are cities across the country where the, the footage isn't public where, you know, the cost of the cameras actually isn't a lot, but the cost of storing the data is actually really expensive. So we don't, you know, we don't want to fund a $50 million apparatus for data storage. Like that doesn't make sense either. Right. So, and we also don't want the the challenge with community policing. And I was just talking to a mayor in a city who was sort of annoying. And I was saying to him, like, you're talking about community policing, but it's only as true community policing. If those police are going to be up in the affluent white communities talking to Timmy when he gets off the bus too. Right. Because really the way people implement community policing is like, put the police where the black people live, not put them in everybody's community. And it's like, well, I don't know if the the police shouldn't have to like meet my child not to kill him. Like that's sort of like a crazy notion. They shouldn't have to say hi to me every day to treat me nicely and fairly, you know? And that has all sorts of weird impacts too, right? Which is you're growing up in a community that has like police around all the time. It reinforces this idea that like you need to be managed and like we expect you to make poor decisions, Right. right? 
white people make poor decisions every day and they are not in jail and they're making a whole lot of poor decisions and it's just like the cost of doing business. A black kid makes a poor decision and it's like 30 years, right? And like that isn't even hyperbole. That's like, you know, what the disparities look like. So talk a little bit about, you know, you've been using social tools. You were using Twitter and Ferguson. It was a big part of Ferguson. Um, there's clearly a lot of these social tools are a, a big enabler of activism, but on the other hand, it's also a way that people target you and also target activists, right? Like, how do you how do you deal with that, and how do you think about how you know aspiring activists or people who are starting to get involved should be thinking about that? Yeah, I think that you know, I think that we're at the beginning of of sort of the social media space. Uh, it is already so. That you think about four years ago, you know, people. Um, people forget that the only video we had was Vine, you know, that was it. So literally we'd like record a video on our phone. We'd like go step away for a second, put the phone up to our ear to hear like the best six seconds. And then we slide the little thing to find the six seconds. Like it was crazy to put video on Twitter. It was like, a, it took real skill and real work. It wasn't like, like yeah. of the best moments. Whereas now I was, I remember when J Jack's a good friend at Twitter. I remember when Jack bought Periscope. I remember the call being like, Hey, Dre, will you test out this thing? Like, so like the thought that now like anybody can live stream and like you did, that is like a new that is yeah. new we didn't have like that 18 months ago <laughs> yeah we didn't have that in the in any of those days in protest yeah so i think that we're still seeing like the social media space grow and as it grows i think that the way people interact with it is different so at the beginning i do think it was like you know we were at the forefront of like american twitter using it to talk about justice before then it had been like very entertainment based and now we're in an age where like literally everybody has the tools to like show what's happening whereas that, that just wasn't the case before is that we had like i was one of the tweeters who like that was what i did there were people who were the live streamers because like they had the stream because that was the only stream you know like they, we hadn't democratized video streaming like so i think that we're on the fourth i think that we're sort of at the beginning of it i do the the death threat stuff or like the security stuff i, I I take seriously. I try not to get too uh, sort of lost in it. Like I've gotten death threats. There was a, a movie theater that got evacuated because somebody said they're gonna, they tweeted they're going to kill me. The first person ever permanently banned from Twitter was banned for saying he's going to raise money to get me killed. So, so I'm sensitive to those things. I'm mindful though that people want us to be too afraid to do good work. So like I try to balance it. I don't normally say where I'm going to be in advance. Like I try to do those things to mm -hmm. keep me just um, some of it too though um, around the positive impact. I think and tell me if I'm wrong is that you know we had these social tools in the hands of I would just say like an older generation maybe who hadn't grown up with them. And now with you and Ferguson and other people in Ferguson and most, most recently Parkland, we're seeing younger people who grew up with these things. Um, I just think they just seem to be so much better at using them than. And not only grew up with right? it, but they, they had a model. Right. So I think about like one of the reasons that people sit in street in the beginning is that they saw people standing in streets, right? Like you saw, you weren't alone any longer. Like it created space. So now it's like protest is cool. And people ask me like, why am I not traveling to all the cities? Now it's like, cause they don't, I don't need to in the same right. way. At, back then people didn't want to be on the news defending the protest. People didn't want to tweet about what, like it was like a taboo thing. Now it's like a cool status. And it's like, if you have not gone to a protest this month, how dare you be a citizen, right? right, right. Which is not what it was uh, four years ago. So I'm mindful of that. And you're right that there are younger, they're, they're like, uh, the Parkland kids are a great example. They were like, what, in middle school when we were in the street in Ferguson. Yeah. They like literally saw it on TV and did it. So when it was, when it was a moment where they were called to the street, it was like, they weren't alone. There was an infrastructure already to like receive them. There was like a media apparatus that actually knew how to talk about it in a way. So like you look at the martial art lives, people ask us like, why didn't we watch? It's like, we couldn't even, it was illegal to stand still in August, September, and October. We couldn't stand still. Yeah. Let alone have a rally, you know, right. like. 
We couldn't stand still. Yeah. Whereas now there's like a whole apparatus to like build rallies and like to make signs and you know Gucci's throwing a party, sign making party. You're like that is they were not doing that when it was black people, you know? Right. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right. We'll talk about that a little bit because there's been some discussion about that. It's an important thing. Um, there's some students who uh, in Park, at Parkland who were black lives matter and weren't getting attention and have talked about how you know how the this cause has gotten a lot of attention all of a sudden and you know how do you think about that like do you think about your podcast as something that's trying to help change that i think of the podcast is that you know i started the podcast because twitter i felt like was doing a good job of sort of spreading information i wasn't sure that people were learning right so i wanted to figure out like what's a platform where people could learn and that's why i started the podcast like i wanted to have these so the the last live live podcast we did was about um it was like an astrophysicist and a geneticist and like i've never talked to an astrophysicist so I'm, my first question is like do black holes really do they really like suck things in like i see on cartoons and she's like i won't give you the answer but it's fascinating i was like I don't even think about black holes. So like trying to create a space where people can just like be closer to issues that they otherwise wouldn't be close to. And and like I think that is important. Uh, the the equity piece of this, sorry, like how do we talk about the impact on different communities and, and making sure communities have what they deserve and need uh, is real. So you think about Parkland, it's like some of the students put on a platform saying that they want more police officers in schools. And it's like what we know to be true is that since police officers have been in schools, they've arrested a million kids. They've stopped maybe one shooting. And so when we talk about the school to prison pipeline, it's not theoretical. It literally is like there are a million kids who their first interaction with law enforcement was in school. And like, if police officers have to be in schools, they should not be a part of discipline, right? They should be like protecting the building or something. I don't know. But they shouldn't be a part of the discipline process. Like kids are kids. They should, they are going to make mistakes and like there should be consequences for them. The police should not be their consequence. Because for a lot of people having more public safety officers and more police officers in the school sounds great. A lot of but it's actually not, like yeah, that. but it's actually not great for a lot of people at all. It's not great for a lot of yeah. people. So tell me a little bit um, about where the podcast is going, what you're hoping in the long term to do with it. Yeah, I want, I want people to learn. Like, that's like the biggest thing. So I'm proud, you know, I, it opens with, um, it opens with the news and we talk about all the news that's not Trump, like the things that are really important in the world that you might not know, but are important. So we do that. And then it's like an interview that I do. Um, so... Like tonight we have Torre. We just had the astrophysicist and geneticist. That was great. And National Geographic. I've had Snowden off Chelsea Manning on at some point. I know I was just with Chelsea at another thing. So trying to figure out like how do we just bring these conversations? I'm fascinated. We're gonna have some. I want to do an episode on food stamps. I just uh, we scheduling has been hard. Um, we do one on foster care. Like these issues. The food stamp uh, thing is such an important thing, right? Because this country gives 
it's such a tiny amount of money, right, that actually goes out to food stamps. And you have these, like, politicians in Washington who are railing against food stamps all the time. And it's, like, it's the tiniest, tiniest yeah, fraction of money. Like it's welfare, crazy that it's they like would even talk about it. It's so small. And it's, like, how do we make sure we talk about things not only when they are crises but, like, because they're important. So my news tonight is about Wisconsin. And, like, Wisconsin just selected a, a, a like, a progressive woman on the Supreme Court, which is a big deal because the governor of Wisconsin is a nightmare. Uh, but there's a larger question about, like, why are we electing judges, right? That, like, we should be talking about it's just, like, a matter of democracy. So you think about Alabama, every single judge in Alabama is elected. Alabama's very racist. That's why Roy Moore, that guy, like, yeah. he was elected twice in the state yeah. Supreme Court. Like, what if we literally just make a different structure where, like, we're not electing, like, judges aren't a political position. They should be, like, an impartial, you know, like, so how do we start to talk about these structural things? Not only when there's, a like, a fire, but just because they're the right things to talk about. So, like, I think that this is, like, Brittany was just, I think we're going to do something about Flint and, like, you know, untold, um, you know, one of the interesting things about Flint is that, like, there's a decrease in, I don't know if we talked about this in the pod, there's a decrease in literacy in Flint, like, a huge, it's, like, one of the biggest decreases we have recorded in a mm -hmm. long time, uh, the kids who are impacted by the water in Flint, and, like, you know, you think about lead, I don't, it's, like, weird the way people talk about lead, but like the top line with lead is that there's no cure. That's like the that is that should be everybody's takeaway. No yep. cure for lead. Yep. So the best thing you can do when kids have lead poisoning, I put them in special ed. It's why in Flint they're fighting to make sure every kid gets tested because like because the exposure was so grand, like the lack of testing early is going to lead to we know it's going to lead to learning deficiencies yeah. and it's like those sort of things are important like every single day in people's lives but what you see on network news is like all this trump stuff that like isn't actually impacting people's lives yeah you ran for mayor of baltimore a few years ago are we going to see you running for mayor again or see you running for something soon maybe i think that we have to be as organized on the inside as we are on the outside it's why i went back and became the chief human capital the school system and did that for a year uh, i'm excited to work on other people's campaigns and help them i have a big platform so want to figure out like how can i create space for people who like otherwise might not have the space and that's how i see my role today but i am I, you know i believe in structures and system i think that there are times i think like right now i'm more impactful pushing from the outside when i was a tv human capital i was more impactful pushing on the inside and like i think that that interplay of like knowing where you can make the biggest impact is like what i'm most interested in so if it means run again like love to uh right now i think that the work we're doing around four big issues the police a mass incarceration. I'm obsessed with adult literacy. We don't have a project around adult literacy right now, but like it is an obsession. Um, and the racial wealth gap are like the things that we're able to have like the biggest impact on. Doria McKesson, uh, nominated Pod Save the People on the Webbies. We're hoping we'll see you at the Webbies this year. Thanks so much for sitting down with us on the Webby Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much to Duray for joining us and for all the important work he's doing. Keep up with him at Duray. That's at D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. And if you have an hour or so to spare, I highly recommend listening to his Webby-nominated podcast, Pod Save the People, and vote for it in the Webby People's Voice Awards through next Thursday, April 19th. Our producer is Sebastian Ade. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Research and writing by Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is a classic, vintage Australian banjo. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.